0: Hello, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the second week of the Science Festival. Um, I'm very delighted to introduce uh, Dr. Kirsty Whitaker. Uh, Kirsty received her PhD in neuroscience from the University of California at Berkeley. And I'm very jealous of that. She is now a postdoctoral researcher in the brain mapping unit at the Department of Psychiatry here at the university. Kirsty is also the Mozilla Fellow for Science and a passionate advocate for reproducible neuroimaging research. And I'll hand over to Kirsty who can tell us more. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much. Yes, I am a passionate advocate for reproducible neuroimaging research. That is not what I'm talking about, but if anyone wants to ask me any questions about it, You can wait until the end if you want, but I am very, very excited about that. And I am also excited about telling you about what we do, some of the work that we do here in Cambridge, some of the work that I did with colleagues in Berkeley, and actually I'm going to sort of cheekily present to you some work that I really, really like uh, that is not my own. I have some nice pictures of my uh, delightful co-workers who who do all of these interesting studies. I want to start off... Shout out, which of these pictures goes best with the picture at the top? Three, two, one. The baby. And you might have thought the rocket ship. And if you, this is a terrible thing to say, if you were three or four years old, that would be okay. But once you are a little bit older than three or four, um, you usually can sort of consider the semantics of the um, pictures, the objects that you're looking at and realize that the correct answer to this task is, in this case, baby. Babies go with bottles. And, oh, yes, that's the semantic task. Remember that. That's going to come up later. This is a little bit of a harder task. This is an analogy task. And here I'm going to ask you, which of the pictures along the bottom goes best with the, replaces the question mark? So cat is to mouse as lion is to? Zebra, good job. And a lot of people, and I I actually didn't hear it in the room. Maybe you were already rocking on it. But a lot of people say lions and tigers go together. And if you were just doing the same task that I asked you to do in the the first question, lions and tigers, they totally do go together. That's exactly right. They're both big cats. They both live in the wild. Um, But in this case, I'm asking you to do harder work. I'm asking you to uh, reason and specifically to complete an analogical Reasoning exercise. There is also a perceptual lure on this slide. And one thing that I find really fascinating about the results of this study, which I'm going to show you on the next slide, is that actually people do still press the perceptual lure more often than they press what we call the distractor, which is that last picture. It's a dragonfly. It's got absolutely nothing to do with anything. And so even when you are 18 years old, which was the oldest age of the study that we looked at, you're still. There's still something, if you're under a time constraint and you're guessing, you're still going to press that perceptual law, but then you're more likely to say the semantic law and then actually you're most likely to get it correct by the time that you're 18. Let me show you that as a graph, and this work was done with uh, Mike Vendetti at Berkeley. The red line is the semantic, the blue line is that harder analogy question. On the y-axis is the percentage that you got correct, so you want to be up near 100%. That's a good sign. And on the x-axis are the ages of our participants. And what I want you to see is that people are continuing to get better in terms of analogical reasoning almost all the way through their teenage years. So the red line kind of hits what we call ceiling pretty quickly, you know, everyone's doing really quite well on that red line. It's pretty high, but the blue line is still is still going up through your teenage years. And This is just looking at it in a slightly different way. On the y-axis now, we have reaction time, and so a smaller number is better. It means you're faster at responding to the questions, and you can see that everyone is faster for the semantic question, faster at doing that easy one, and slower at doing the um, analogy task and... What I again, what I really want to point out is that that line isn't flat, it's still going down all the way up until age 18. And you'll see later in a study that we did uh, here in Cambridge that really there's nothing even special about 18. like It still keeps going all the way through your 20s, which is sort of somewhat cool and somewhat terrifying. Okay. So, I've talked about reasoning, let me just define it for you here. Reasoning is the capacity to think logically and solve problems in novel situations. It's integral to theories of human intelligence, and it's thought to act as a scaffold for, new, for the acquisition of new skills and knowledge. So just going back to this question, um, you, you really need to be able to understand what a cat is, what a mouse is, what a lion is, what each of those uh, animals along the bottom are, and also the relationships between them. And so we want to ask the question which parts of the brain are used when you are answering these questions. So what we did is we had our, we had about 100 participants between the ages of 6 and 18, lie in an MRI scanner, and they answered these questions while lying really still in a scanner. And these are our results. Now, it's a whole bunch of pretty brains, with some nice pretty colors, everyone really likes that. I'm going to try and sort of talk you through a little bit what you're looking at. On the top are what we call lateral views of the brain. So it's as though you're looking, so the one on the far side is as though you're looking from this direction. This one in the top corner is as though you're looking from this direction. And then I think most of you probably know that the brain is, is um, it's in two hemispheres and it's connected oh. in the middle. So, what you're looking at along the bottom in a slightly sort of gruesome way, but don't worry, it's an image. We haven't actually done this to anyone. Is as though you're taking apart the two hemispheres and looking at them from the inside. So, on the left-hand side, you're looking at the left hemisphere as though you've sliced down the middle and looked left. And on the right-hand side, you're looking at the right-hand hemisphere. And now, I'm going to explain the colours. I mean, I just went crazy with this figure. Uh, In yellow are all the regions that are used when you're answering the um, semantic, that easy question. In red are all the regions that are used when you're answering the analogy question. And in orange, which is the main thing I want you to sort of take from this, are the regions that you use for both. So on the top top left corner, which is the left-hand lateral side of the brain, what I want you to notice is that there's this huge swath around the front of the brain. Sorry, I should just make really clear. that's what, that sort of run that's going down the front, that's the, that's the prefrontal cortex, that's the front of the brain. And it's an area that's really, really important for complex um, understanding. So reasoning is one of them. Reasoning is something that we, it, it probably isn't unique to humans, but humans are particularly good at it. And it's this um, ability that sort of develops quite late in terms of your development through your teenage years, through your childhood and teenage years. So, I want you to take home from this that the areas of the brain that underlie reasoning are in prefrontal and parietal cortex, and you can also call that association cortex. And the reason that we call it association cortex is because it is associating with itself. It's parts of the brain that are sending messages to themselves and doing lots of computation. That's going to come up again later. Another question, this is about sort of, I'm interested in how the brain develops. I'm interested in how people uh, use their brain differently as they get older. And so this is our next question, is how do activation, how does the, the brain activation, the parts of the brain that you use during, when you're answering these questions, how does that change as you get older? And now, what I want you to see is that on the top left, you have this block of red. And that's specifically how you're using your brain differently as you get older for analogy questions, for those hard questions. The semantic ones, they don't really change so much. There's sort of, everyone's reasonably good at it, and we weren't able to see any changes in the analogy. But the, um, but the red area at the front, that's related to those, um, those... Did I say analogy? Yeah. We didn't see changes in the semantic. We didn't see any changes in the easy one, but we did see changes in the analogy. Thanks. At the back of the brain here... Yeah. Um, That's visual cortex. It's primary visual cortex. And the reason that these change an awful lot is because you have more things on the screen. So if you imagine that your eyes are looking at much more complex images, they're going to be used an awful lot more at the back. So what we're really interested in is that swath in the left prefrontal cortex. So prefrontal regions are used more as you get older, and that's related to you getting better at those tasks. Now, I said, when I was writing the... um, the sort of description for this talk that I wanted to tell you the things that we can uh, learn from human brain imaging and also some of the things that you can't. And I am a, I'm a neuroscientist. I am a human neuroimager. I like MRI. I think it's really great, but it's something that's very important to me that you know what an actual MRI image looks like. So this is a different way of looking at the brain. It all gets kind of confusing. It's one of the hardest things about learning to work with brain imaging is that you're thinking about having to sort of investigate a 3D volume that changes with time. So now, let me see if I can get a pointer going. Yeah, here you go. So now what you're looking at are sections of my head. Actually, this is not me. This is one of our participants. Cut this way. So as though you were slicing down here, and right at the front, these are my eyes. These are the participant's eyes, right here and here. And then it's coming up, 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 and you can see the brain. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to play this as a movie. And this this is the data. This is exactly what we get when it comes out of the MRI scanner, when people are answering those questions. So can you see the eyes are blinking a little bit? You can see sort of a little bit of movement around there. And yeah, is it super obvious exactly which parts of the brain are active? No. <laughs> there's a lot of um, there's a lot of analysis that we do, and a lot of studies. You have to have quite large number of people to try to generalise about what we learn. Now, I do want to. Those are my sort of side of you know. Neuroimaging isn't, isn't perfect, but it is kind of amazing that we're still able to see findings and that you do see consistent findings across quite a lot of different studies. Has anyone in the room had an MRI scan? Has anyone been part of a, of a study? Anyone can sort of vaguely wave at me? Yeah, so when you had an MRI scan, you were probably, you, I know that you will have been told to lie still and I'm not going to tell you who this person is, it's not me, uh, but this is kind of why you're supposed to lie still. So we've got, we got, we got these same things, and you should be able to see that the brain gets all kind of smushy in various places, and it looks completely crazy, and that's what happens when you move. It's, it's sort of exactly as though... Um, you're you're running and you're trying to take a photo of someone who's moving very quickly. It's exactly the same thing when you're taking a a brain scan. So it's difficult to study child brain development. It can be a little bit difficult studying teenage brain development because human beings like to itch their nose and wiggle their toes and move around when they're lying in the scanner. But when we have good data, which the first study, the first um, video that I showed you was really good data. We're able to understand what people are, how people are using their brains as they're answering questions. Now, this, I think this looks like a much nicer image. This one, you can sort of, looks kind of like a brain to me. Um, this time, it's looking this way, and I can refer to me. This is my brain that is looking at me, my brain. Um, <laughs> And this is called a structural scan. So before I was showing you videos, and that's because we were taking, we had to take images of the brain very, very quickly to try and capture what people were doing as they were answering the questions. And that's a really, that's a really important way of studying the brain. You can consider the brain in a different format. You can look at the brain's structure. And specifically, this type of scan allows you to do that. And what I am particularly interested in is the gray matter. And the way that we delineate gray matter is you can draw, this red line goes around the outside of the brain, and I've drawn in the yellow line here. To be clear, I did not do this. A computer drew in these two lines um, using a very nice fancy algorithm. Uh, And you can draw the boundary between gray matter and white matter. And let me just zoom in a little bit. I hope you can see it quite nicely. The gray matter is, it's called the cortex. It bends around the outside of the brain and it folds into sulci and gyri. You don't need to know those words, but in in case you do. And the reason that it folds is to to fit all of your brain into your head. If you didn't, if you just sort of had like a, a smooth brain, you'd have to have really, really long connections between the different parts of the brain and also a head the size of this room, which is impractical. Um, And so what you're looking at here are the the folds, and inside of the, um, or between the yellow and the red lines is where the cell bodies of the neurons are. So it's actually where the sort of the really important um, calculations are happening and where the the communications are happening between two different neurons, two, three, four, or more um, of the brain cells. One of the measures that you can get from these scans is a measure called cortical thickness. You can see that I got bored of drawing these blue lines. It actually was a lot more of a pain than I thought when I started. But what I want you to imagine is that those blue lines go all the way around and you can get a measure of the thickness of the cortex. So the distance between the outside of the brain and where we draw white matter. White matter is the... um, are the connections between them. And you can think about them as being like the cables with lots of electrical tape around them. The reason that white matter looks white on these images is because you have myelin, and myelin uh, is this protective sheath that goes around your neuron. So cortex, really important, lots of computations happening there, and we can get a measure of cortical thickness. And now you're just looking at uh, two images, but there's, you're looking at the um, right, let me get this right, You're looking at the uh, right lateral and right medial. So lateral looking from the side over there and medial, this is cutting down the middle. And this is a a single person and we are able to say how thick the cortex is in different regions. So down at this blue end of the line, the cortex is about 2.5 millimeters thick and as you get to warmer colors over here, you're starting to get thicker cortex that's around about 3.5 millimeters. Now, if you think about how that that's really small, right? Like, it's really, really thin, 2.5 to 3.5 millimeters. But there are differences in different parts of the brain. I already told you that the back of the brain is related to vision. It's what we call primary cortex. It means that it sort of does one job and does it well. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but... For now, And then there's association cortex in the prefrontal cortex that tends to be a bit thicker. Now, another caveat on human brain imaging. These are absolutely beautiful pictures of real cells. So, I was describing to you the cell bodies in the cortex, and then you have these axons that are myelinated, and they send their, their messages to different parts of the brain this is what the cortex really looks like. This is, these are the real cells right here, and then there's sort of a boundary where you start to see there's no more cell bodies, and that's the white matter. And then if you zoom right in and you look at just two of the cells, you can see how complex they are and how complex the different um, aspects. So these are, the, these are the dendrites. These are the parts of the cells that receive information. You can kind of think of them as like the ears of the neuron um, listening out for messages from any other cells. And the messages are sent along these parts here. So these are the real cells, and this is not what you can see even on that lovely MRI image. But the only way to get these cells is to, put, is to cut out a piece of brain and put them under the microscope. And I think those of you who've had an MRI scan would hopefully, hopefully agree that an MRI scan is better than having someone drill into your head and and take out some of your brain. So, we can measure changes in the thickness of the cortex. We can look to see how different parts of the cortex um, relate to each other, but we don't really know what's going on inside. And the upside of that is you work out, it's totally non-invasive, you're safe, you can come back another time and have another brain scan. one of the ideas one of the sort of important ideas of um teenage brain development is that different parts of the brain develop at different times and so what you're looking at here is this idea that when you're younger all parts of your brain aren't particularly well developed and when you are older they're all equally well developed they've all got there but during your teenage years during adolescence there's a gap between them where you have um, the prefrontal cortex, which I've already pointed out and mentioned to you, it's in blue on this image, is slower to develop than uh, the subcortical or limbic regions, such as the nucleus accumbens or the amygdala. And you need to have all of these different areas. The parts of the brain are very specialized. They they kind of work together um, to allow you to do to sort of make, make decisions and understand things about the world, reason about what you're seeing, make decisions. And if you don't have these areas, so uh, in blue, you've got a prefrontal cortex region and in yellow, there's, it's part of the basal ganglia, it's also subcortical, it's one of those areas that we think develops much faster. Um, and this is a study that uh, some other people did looking at teenagers driving cars. And they actually, what's really fascinating, what I really like about this study is that teenagers driving cars, uh, This is, sorry, not real cars, it's in a simulation. They, they don't actually send, send teenagers out and be like, let's see if you make any mistakes. Um, <laughs> that would be bad. Uh, so this is a simulation, sends people out, but and what, we, what we found, one of the things that I, they found, is that teenagers on their own do fine. They do, they, they do fine. They make exactly as many, which is quite low, number of mistakes as adults. But when you put other people in the car, so when you put their peers in the car with them, and you can be distracted by chatting, I mean, I'm distracted by chatting all the time, but you, that's when they start to make mistakes. And this is where kind of what we think is happening is that the prefrontal cortex, which is particularly important for sort of uh, controlling what we're doing and paying attention, is not quite fully developed yet. So on this slide, I'm showing you different parts of the brain. This is a subcortical region, the amygdala, another subcortical region. These are the fast-developing ones, and the prefrontal cortex. And I'm not sure if you can see these numbers very much, but the first two are only changing about 7% during your teenage years, and the prefrontal cortex is changing about 17%. So it's it's changing an awful lot more during this time frame. And the reason that I've left this bottom panel... Where's my mouse gone? Oh, I've lost him. Here we go. The reason that I've left this bottom panel on here is, again, for me, it's this sort of caveat that I want you to... I want you to leave, you know, with kind of real scientific knowledge. Um, There are large individual differences in the amount that people's brain changes. So what you're looking at along the bottom, each of those different individual lines are scans from the same person when they've come back two, three, or four times to be part of the study. So my take home is that different parts of the brain develop at different times, but everybody's different. So sort of overgeneralizing about teenagers. I don't know if there, there may be teenagers in the room. I think, you know, you are, we are, all individuals, and everyone is different. So, on the top up here, on the, on the left, that's the same image that I showed you before about how, cortex, how the cortical thickness is different in different parts of the brain. And now what I'm showing you along the bottom is something that I hinted at, which is that the cortex gets thinner as you get older. So in, in all of the different blue regions are the amount that the cortex gets uh, thinner. And then on the right-hand side, you can just sort of see a scatterplot. Each one of those different people is an individual participant that came in to be part of a study that we have um, here in Cambridge in collaboration with Uni- University College London uh, called the Neuroscience and Psychiatry Network. So we brought in 300 people between the ages of 14 and 24, and we scanned them. We got some beautiful structural scans, and we measured their cortex, and we showed that it thins as they get older. And I think that seems really counterintuitive, right? it, It feels like they're getting better, they're getting older, they're more able to, you know, not crash these simulations when they're driving the cars. So why are they losing that important part of their brain? And I don't think they're losing those parts of the brain. I think that what's happening is that they have a slower development in certain parts of the brain such that they are more able to respond to information. They're more able to kind of learn from the experiences they have. And once they have learned the best way, the best way to interact with the situation, the best um, things to pay attention to when you're driving, the best, people to kind of pay attention to in a social circle in all these sort of complex um social groupings in school then you fix in place the connections that are really important so do you remember that picture that i showed of the two cells with all of their various dendrites all of those different sort of ways in which you can have cells connecting Well, when you're born you're born with more neurons than you'll ever have and fun fact you start losing them from day one um, but more importantly, you, you build up a huge number of connections. They're called synapses. They're the connections between neurons. You build up lots and lots and lots of those. And then over time, you prune them away. And the reason for that is you have, you have tons. You're able to figure out which is the best way of sending communications. But after a while, you want to be more efficient. After a while, you want to say, okay, I don't need to send this same mes- message through 10 different paths. I'm just going to pick this really good one. And what I think is happening is that you place myelin, which is that electrical sheet, electrical tape, kind of, um, around the connections that really matter. And so what we showed in this study that was published last year is that when the cortex gets thinner as you get older, you also increase the amount of myelin that you place down and you you put around those connections. What I think is happening is that you have myelin holding in place and making stronger the really, really important connections. Now, I think you probably heard me say, this is what I think is happening, this is what I think is going on and, you know, I want to sort of reiterate, I don't know what's going on because I do not, in fact, slice open our participants' heads. Um, and you, can't, and you and no one does that. <laughs> That's not me being lazy. Um, <laughs> so what can we do? So what, what can, how can we try to get some evidence for what we think is happening at the cellular level um, beyond just kind of being like, well... I think it's probably happening. And this is where my colleague, Dr. Petra Vitesh comes in, as well as um, the Allen Institute for Brain Science. So, Paul Allen is a billionaire, probably. Um, He, I think, I'm pretty sure he founded Microsoft or one of the founders. And he decided that, the pace at which academic science was, was undertaken was too slow, um, and he wanted to industrialize some aspects of it. And in particular, uh, a task that is very, very difficult to do is to take um, donated brains. These are brains that are taken after someone has passed away, take out a sample, of their brain, take out a sample of the cells in their cortex, in that gray matter that's around the outside and, and other parts of the brain as well, and look to see which genes are particularly active, which genes you can see in that region. Now, many, many other labs around the world, not many, a decent number of labs around the world will do this, but they will only do, you know, five or six different locations. And they'll probably pick their favorite part of the brain. So like, I might care about prefrontal cortex. I think you probably picked that up. I'm gonna pick up and I'm gonna have a look at all of those prefrontal regions. But I, I don't have the sort of um, the manpower and the, the money to scale up and look at the whole brain. And this is what the Allen Institute has done. The Allen Institute spent 10 years collecting data. They have, I, I did an amazing tour of their facility in Seattle last summer, and they just have these really expensive, really, really state-of-the-art microscopes, and they have them, sort of, I think there's four or five in a row, and someone sits there every day figuring out, taking these samples, running it through. They've got a body of software engineers who have um, pulled all of the information together, and importantly, they've made it publicly available. So if you go on their website, you can just download the gene expression at about 1,000 different locations around the brain of, these, um, of 20,000 genes. So, 20,000 genes and looking to see how they are expressed at all of those different regions. Now, what Petra did, which is particularly, particularly clever, is figure out how on earth you were going to interpret 20,000 genes. You can just pick one. You can be like, my favorite gene is myelin basic protein. And if I show you myelin basic protein, as you can imagine, it does correlate with where I think there's a lot of myelin in our MRI scans. And that's really cool. But it's better to find a way of looking at all of those different genes together and how they relate to each other. So there's a technique called uh, partial least squares regression. It's a multivariate analysis. It is delightfully complicated, and I am very happy to try and explain it in the questions, but I would like you to sort of, for now, come with me, sort of trust, trust me, trust, trust Petra, that it tells you how groups of genes are related to each other and how they are working together to explain patterns. And we found one set of genes where the expression really matched um, a sort of a difference between primary cortex, oh, hang on, I've got this on the wrong side. Primary cortex at the back of the brain here versus association cortex at the front, (laughs) and this is related to um, what we call the the sort of baseline measures, the differences between regions, but also a different set of genes that are particularly related to how much these regions change during um, the teenage years So, they're more likely to be found in the prefrontal cortex, and they're less likely to be found in the medial, uh, temporal, and occipital regions. And these are the regions that are sort of less related to the complex changes that we think are late developing in the teenage years. So, even more (laughs) impressive on top of this is you can actually look to see which words, which functions have been related to those genes. And we found that uh, genes relating to the regulation of synapses, so regulation of the changes between the connections, are expressed in regions that are changing during adolescence. So, this is evidence linking microscopic measures of gene expression in post mortem tissue, you know, data that you can only get after someone has donated their brain science, and linking it to living, breathing real-life um, teenagers to try and understand a little bit better about what's happening in the in the structural changes as they get older. Now these genes are also related to a risk of schizophrenia, um, there's a set of genes that's been identified uh, as relating to people who go on to have a risk of schizophrenia, and those genes are more likely to be found in these regions as well as oligodendrocytes. And the picture on the left is not an... It's a a drawing. It's an artistic rendering of an oligodendrocyte. But they're my favorite cells in the body. And they are the, uh, the cells that make myelin. So this is the cell itself. And it's wrapping myelin around the different axons of neighboring neurons. So this is the mechanism. This is, I think, evidence for the mechanism that I was describing before that... As you get older, as you practice, as you figure out the best connections in your brain to explain the world around you and to react to it, you put myelin around the really good ones, and you use oligodendrocytes to do that. So, we can use openly available data sets to better understand our MR images and the biological mechanisms of adolescent brain development. That's a bit, it's a bit heavy. This is kind of a really, it's a very cool analysis. So let me bring it back. The spinning brain, everyone loves spinning brains. This is a spinning brain. And there's lots of dots in there. There's lots of different regions. And so far, a lot of what I've told you has considered the brain just region by region. It hasn't thought about how those regions are connected to each other. So what I've done here in this video is it started out with every region, And then I took out uh, nodes of a network, the different regions that are not particularly well-connected to each other, and I've just kept what we call the rich club. And the rich club is kind of exactly what you would imagine it to be. Well-connected brain regions are likely to be connected to other well-connected brain regions. It's like going to Eton or the University of Cambridge. (laughs) Um, and these regions, so this network that you're looking at here, the, these brain regions are more likely to be found in association cortex. They're likely to be found in the, um, in the prefrontal cortex as well as other regions that it connects to. And they're the, the hubs of the network, where the hubs, you can think about uh, the hub of a network being like Heathrow Airport with lots and lots of messages being sent to lots of different places around the world, the hubs of the network are the ones that change most during adolescence. And the way that I, we interpret that is that the parts of the brain that are most important for complex cognition are still developing. They're late developing. They're still going through adolescence. Now, look at the time. Yeah. You slightly changed tact and sort of pull out a little bit. I've told you a bunch of sort of pretty nerdy, sciencey um, image processing biology. And I want to step back and explain a little bit more about why we in the Neuroscience and Psychiatry Network, why we're doing this. So it's fun, it's super fun playing with all of these images and figuring out and having a look and making all the nice pictures and understanding which uh, sort of maybe thinking about what biological mechanisms might be happening, but we are all motivated by trying to understand and support young people with mental health disorders. Um, it is the case, and we know this from epidemiological studies, so studies of across sort of large numbers of people in the population, that your late teenage years is a very common time for people to have their first episode of uh, depression and or uh, psychosis, which is related to a, a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And one of the reasons that we want to understand what typical brain development looks like is because it's possible that atypical brain development is what leaves you at risk of mental health disorders. And I wanna talk about this work uh, by Dr. Anna-Laura Van Harmelen who's here in the Department of Psychiatry in Cambridge, she's a Royal Society Fellow. Um, and the take home is that your early childhood environment predicts your teenage mental health. And I'm just gonna, this is a little bit of a big, busy picture, so I'm gonna break it down. So this was a study where we um, asked people at age 11, About their childhood and whether they had experienced any maltreatment. Now, maltreatment is sometimes a little bit of a sort of difficult concept to get your head around, but it's not quite abuse, but it's also not a supportive, loving environment. So it is um, neglect without maybe being criminal neglect. Um, and it leaves, it leaves children feeling sort of un- insecure about uh, the world around them. If you had adversities, if you experienced adversities um, in your childhood, it meant that you were more likely to experience, that's what the green arrows mean here, you're more likely to experience um, physical bullying at age 11 or relational bullying, which is sort of um, I don't know, like verbal bullying at age 11, and having childhood adversities meant that at age 14, when you came back in for the study and you, we asked you about your family environment, you tended to have worse family environment than people who hadn't experienced childhood adversities, so that's what the red arrow means, that if you had childhood adversities, you also were, you had a less supportive family environment. And if you had a less supported family environment, you were more likely to experience depressive symptoms later on at age 17. So these were the same participants that came in three times uh, for the study. And if you had childhood adversities, you were more likely to experience depressive symptoms at age 17. That's something that's quite well known. I think it's pretty worrying and I think it's a really important point that if you know anyone um, that you think is at risk as a child, it's a particularly vulnerable time. But what I really like, oh, let me tell you, yeah. And in addition, and you, you won't probably be too surprised about this, that if you experience bullying as a, as a young person, you are also more likely to, experience, to develop uh, symptoms of depression later on in your teenage years. What I like, though, is that although if you experience relational bullying, you, are, you have um, weaker friendships, you tend to report that you have poorer friendships, that's what the red arrow along the bottom is pointing out, if you have good friendships, you are less likely to experience, uh, to, to get a diagnosis of depression. So there are lots of things, I guess, <laughs> to sort of take home, All of the different relational points in this um, figure, in this study, your early childhood impacts your um, later mental health, but if you happen to have good family support or strong peer relationships in your early teenage years, that can protect you, that may protect you against mental health disorders later on. Teenage friendships along with family support can protect teenagers from mental health disorders. And one of the things that Anna Laura is now working on as part of the Neuroscience and Psychiatry Network is trying to understand the, the neurobiology, some of the, how the brain is actually related to some of the challenges that these people uh, with, the, with their symptoms of depression <laughs> face. So I'm gonna finish up. Uh, I have this slide here. And the reason, so the reason that I put it on here is because I like to finish by pointing out that your teenage years are actually they're really important. You're, you're building up the sort of the scaffolding that's required of you as a fully independent adult. Um, I put the sports players on because I'm always struck, whenever the Olympics is on, I'm always really struck about, struck by how many young people are leading the world in terms of various different um, sports or games or, or areas of expertise. And there's a reason, I think there's a reason for that. It's because your brain, as an, as an adolescent, you are in this incredibly powerful stage of life where you still have lots and lots of ability to respond to your environment, to train your brain, to change it. You can change your brain all the way through your life. That's what living every day is. It doesn't stop when you hit 18. In fact, it doesn't stop when you hit 24 either. But there is something particularly powerful about this window, and that's why I'm interested in looking at it from both sides, from the risk of mental health and also from the strengths that can come with it. So I told you that the adolescent brain is still changing that different parts of the brain develop at different times, that the hubs of the network, the really well-connected areas, change the most during adolescence, and that we can use MRI to image living, breathing, real-life teenagers, but linking to other data sets improves our interpretation of the results, and that your childhood experiences affect your teenage years, but positive friendships can provide resilience against the risk of mental health disorders. And I want to finish by saying thank you to every member in the Neuroscience and Psychiatry Network, um, uh, my collaborators in Berkeley on the Neurodevelopment of Reasoning Ability, the NORA project, um, our funders, the Wellcome Trust, um, Petra, my boss, Ed Bullmore, and also all of my colleagues at the Brain Mapping Unit, the BMU, who are a bunch of nerds. Thank you. Thank you, very interesting talk. Um, can I ask, on the um, influence of the early environment on the risk of uh, depression and other mental health problems, there's presumably a large genetic element as well, and I wonder what proportion the early environment uh, represents compared to the genetic, and secondly, whether the genetics could also, in your parents, affect the likelihood that your environment will be adverse and therefore have an indirect influence through that as well. So I... It's a really important question, and I'm going to completely skirt it by saying um, I don't know. And there are there are so and the the really hard part about answering it is that the people who gave you your genes are also the people who give you your environment. So it's a particularly difficult question to answer. It's a really important one, and there are some studies of. Um, twins so if you look at families who have identical twins so they have the same genes and the same environment versus um, uh, familial twins who have uh, different genes but the same environment you can start to sort of tease it apart and there are there's a lot there's a pretty substantial genetic component to schizophrenia for sure Um, I don't think there's particularly strong evidence of the um, genetic component for depression, but, now we're gonna throw another spanner in the works, our definition of depression is pretty poor. There's something like 700 different ways in which you can have, you can get a diagnosis of depression. And so, one of the things that uh, colleagues are working on within NSPN, within the Neuroscience and Psychiatry <laughs> Network, is actually trying to sort of, def- uh, instead of relying on um, sort of labeling people with particular um, mental health disorders, which I personally think has been muddying the water and has made this question even harder to answer, we, we are looking at their genes, we are looking at the way in which they, the, the questions that they answer about their lives, but we're trying to sort of pull everything together. And we've developed um, Michelle Sinclair, who's one of the uh, researchers on the project, has developed what we call a general distress factor. And it's really that although you may get, you may be at risk of depression or anxiety or psychosis or a personality disorder or various other mental health disorders, actually you have a lot in common with people who get a diagnosis in other areas. So I have, I have completely skirted your issue, your question. Um, there is a genetic component. It's very hard to disentangle from your early life environment, because your parents give you your genes and they bring you up. Um, they can be separated, but I think what I, what I really love about Anna Laura's work is that even though there is a genetic component it doesn't, it's, it doesn't mean that you are going to develop the disorder. It means that you may be more at risk. And the, sort of the world that I would really like to live in is a world where people who are identified as being at risk for whatever reason are kind of given extra support as we need it. And one of the things that, you know, one of the things that I think is important is trying to figure out the best timing for that support. Um, but, yeah, it's a difficult question. It's a good one. Uh, hi, I've got a question. Um, how can learning dis- uh, how can learning disabilities and the use of technology affect uh, teenage brain development? Uh, so, I think there's probably two questions, right? How do learning dis- disabilities affect teen- affect your brain development, and also how can you sort of use technology? So. A, that's another really good question. I and again, <laughs> this is so sad. Um, I don't. I don't think anyone knows. But given what we know about teenage brain development and what we know about the fact that the brain can respond to its environment, it seems to me like although people with learning disabilities they probably do have areas of their brain that are either not functioning or they have different structure to um, sort of neurotypical people. There isn't really a reason why you can't train your brain to um, work around whatever challenges that brain is particularly experiencing. And I, I really like the idea of sort of finding tools and technology that allow people to, instead of instead of sort of being stuck in a in a path of saying well my brain is different so uh that's all that's all i can ever be um finding ways to sort of allow that brain to function in a way that works for each individual so i think the brain, we know the brain can respond to its environment we know that it can change we know that it's changing during the teenage years so harness it there's a very cool study, sorry, there's a very cool study, which is only tangentially related to what you're saying, but now I want to tell you about it, um, about people who are congenitally blind, so they're born blind, and um, they lay in an MRI scanner, and they, they felt sort of bumps on a paper, uh, on a you know, piece of paper. And if those bumps were just, were just random bumps, uh, the parts of the brain that you saw activated were uh, sensory cortex. It's up in the middle, right, right here, it's right in the middle. And that's exactly as you would expect for people who uh, can see. They would use sensory cortex to feel those bumps. If, however, the people who were born congenitally blind, um, if they were reading braille, so if, that, if those, those bumps actually had meaning to them, they were using visual cortex. So they were using this part of the brain that doesn't get any input, so it can't really do anything, but at some point in development has kind of felt around and said, I've got a bunch of neurons here, they're available for processing, what do you want us to do? And that to me is the model of how kind of um, brain plasticity can allow others to interact in the world in their various different ways. Thank you, I enjoyed the talk. Um, you made a jump at the end from the normal brain to the problematic brain, and that obviously leads to, the, to, to a question. And the question is, have you used, got anything you can say from your imaging work about the problematic brain? For example, has the thickness of, of, the, 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 of any particular grey area changed? or Are any of those regression lines you showed a very slightly different in children who are problematic at 18? So, it's not published work, and so it's, that's why I haven't put it in, but we have some work that implies that um, thinner cortex, which if you remember, your cortex is getting thinner as you get older, (laughs) that thinner cortex is associated with a greater risk of mental health disorders. And that, again, is all about being counterintuitive with this work. It's a little bit counterintuitive, but the way that I have interpreted it is that if you develop your brain too quickly, you end up fixing in place good enough connections, but not necessarily the best connections. So uh, with my collaborators in Berkeley, we used to call it ripening on the vine, that if you keep your brain in a childlike state, in this very plastic, this very sort of receptive state, for longer, you actually are more likely to put into place the best connections. And there's, there's a decent body of literature that's related to that with um, intelligence and how people end up uh, sort of um, faring in later life, according to the thickness of their cortex, that thinner cortex is actually associated with worse outcomes. And we have hints of that within the neuroscience and psychiatry network, and hopefully in the next year you'll see that come out. So once you put myelin down, it's harder. Your plasticity becomes less. So your brain is most plastic when you're really young, and it remains reasonably plastic. But the different, but there are different areas that remain plastic through your teenage years, and then at some point, and I don't think it's particularly clear when your brain sort of really stops being plastic, but it definitely slows down. So, uh, maintaining the plasticity, I think, is pretty important. (laughs) Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, The question was, how do you do that? Um, you, you You are wealthy. (laughs) <laughs> um, socioeconomic status has a huge, huge uh, a sort of quite a compelling relationship with um, brain development um, there there are various training studies that show that the brain the brain can change. So, you know, I I participated in an event on Friday called Neural Knitworks, where everyone was encouraged to come along and knit a neuron. And there were some neuroscientists talking about neurons and what they did. Um, And it would be, I would love to say that knitting, going out, socializing, doing new things, all of those are sort of, um, that, that those will protect your brain and keep it plastic. I don't think that as a scientist, I can say that that's necessarily true, but it, I know that there's a lot of smart people that are working to find that evidence. And it's certainly true in animals, that if you give animals an enriched experience, they have more connections, their brain is more plastic, they're more able to learn from their environment. So I think you know, to the extent that uh, a rat with a sort of exciting wheel and tubes and things in its cage compared to a very boring cage is related to our human lives. Um, I think enrichment, there's a lot of evidence that enrichment is a very positive uh, aspect. Okay, I think that's probably a good note to end on. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you.